Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies. I'm in Luke chapter 23. In our last audio, we discussed Jesus' first three hours on the cross from 9 to 12 on Good Friday. And now we're going to look at Jesus' last three hours on the cross, the three hours of darkness from noon to 3 o'clock on Good Friday. We're going to cover verses 44, 45, and 46 in Luke chapter 23, just three verses. I have four parallel passages where this, these three hours are discussed. Mark 15, verses 33 through 37 is the first. Matthew 27, 45 through 50 is the second. Luke, well, Luke 23, 44 through 46 is the verses, are the verses that we are now discussing in this audio. And then John 19, 28 through 30. The parallel passages parallel pretty quick, pretty much. I'm going to splice in my discussion of Mark 15, verses 33 through 37, which discusses all the parallel passages together, except for three verses in John, which I inadvertently admitted. I will, I will cover those at the very end of the splice. So the splice of Mark 15, verses 40, 33 through 37, that splice begins now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 15. We are in the midst of Jesus' crucifixion. He's been on the cross between 9 and 12 o'clock, and now we're going to take up in this audio the three hours between 12 and 3 o'clock when he died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday afternoon. We'll start in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 35, and we'll, of course, refer to all four Gospels as we go through these events. Starting with Mark 15, verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Now that Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani is Aramaic and it's translated out because the first two words, Eloi, Eloi, and in Matthew it's Eli, Eli, which is, is the same thing in Hebrew according to John Gill. And I take his word for it, I don't know Hebrew. But the words, the first two words, Eloi, Eloi, sound like Elijah. And that's why Mark and Matthew give the Aramaic to show, to, to make it explicable why some of those standing there said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Let's now turn to Matthew 27. We'll do verses 45 through 47. Matthew 27:45 says this, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. So these last three hours that Jesus was on the cross, the land was dark. Now, what caused this darkness? A lot of people like to speculate about this. First option, eclipse of the sun. Can't be. Eclipses last only for a few minutes, not for three hours. Some people say, like John Gill, it was a supernatural eclipse, something that's out of the ordinary. Well, there's another problem. The moon is full at Passover, and eclipses don't happen during the time of a full moon, as John Gill and Adam Clark say. So, ladies and gentlemen, it was not an eclipse of the sun. Some people say that dark rain clouds came up, which is perfectly reasonable. The timing of it, of course, is kind of supernatural, right? When Jesus is dying on the cross, it gave a great dramatic effect to the whole scene there. Origen said that, the dark rain clouds came up. There's some other options listed in Wikipedia, such as volcanic dust might have blown by, or a, what is called a Kamsen dust storm, whatever that is, dust storms in the east that tend to occur from March to May, or it could have even been a sunstorm, a storm on the sun. 
I just think it was dark rain clouds that came up over. Early Christian apologists said it was a miracle because it was known even back then in the ancient times that eclipses could not occur at a full moon. But at any rate, whatever caused that darkness, it convinced the Roman centurion that Jesus was the Son of God, as we'll see in a little bit later when he saw what happened. Now notice that the darkness came over the land, over the whole land. That Greek word for land is gay, and gay can mean earth or land. It's totally ambiguous. Translator's choice, you have to go by the context. And so some people say that the darkness went over the whole earth. So let's look at that argument. John Gill says it's the darkness was over the whole earth. Adam Clark says it was not over the whole earth. In this case, I agree with Clark. I don't believe it was over the whole earth. I believe it was over the whole land of Israel. All right, so here's some of the evidence that Gill quotes saying that the darkness was outside the land of Israel. Quotes an ancient guy named Phlegon. I'm not familiar with him. But Clark refutes Phlegon's evidence by saying this. All the authors who quote him differ and often very materially in what they say was found in him. Phlegon says nothing of Judea. What he says that in such and such an Olympiad, in other words, such and such a year, there was an eclipse in Bithynia. So the date's not clear and the place is Bithynia. Bithynia, excuse me, not Bithynia, but Bithynia, which is in northwestern Asia Minor, oh, northwestern Anatolia, Turkey. And he mentions an earthquake at Nicaea, but not in Jerusalem. Phlegon does not say an earthquake happened at the same time the eclipse happened. He does not intimate that the darkness was extraordinary, or that it happened during a time of the full moon, or that it lasted three hours. That's pretty weak. He speaks of merely of an ordinary, though perhaps total eclipse of the sun. Total eclipses of the sun don't last for three hours. All right, so that's not very good evidence. And then Gill quotes people like Eusebius saying it happened all over the earth. I don't know what Eusebius' authority is. Authority is Tertullian said it happened over the whole earth, and he appealed to Roman archives. An author named Suetus says it was over the whole earth. Dionysius the Areopagite, the famous Dionysius the Areopagite, who is known in history as Pseudo-Dionysius. He's quoted everywhere. He was a philosopher writing about the 5th uh, fifth or 6th century. His writings were a forgeries. They were forgeries. They were claimed to have been written by Dionysius the Areopagite, the guy who was saved on, the, on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was in Athens preaching. Adam Clark says this, It is enough to say of this man that all the writings attributed to him are known to be spurious and are proved to be forgeries of the 5th or 6th century. So we don't want to rely on him talking about a worldwide darkness. Another guy named Thallus, a quotation from Thallus made by Africanus found in the Chronicle of Syncellus of the 8th century, is allowed by eminent critics to be of little importance. Thallus speaks of a darkness over the whole world and an earthquake which threw down many houses in houses in Judea and in other parts of the earth. It may be necessary to observe that Thallus is quoted by several of the ancient ecclesiastical writers for other matters, but never for this, and that the time in which he lived is so very uncertain that Dr. Lardner supposes there is no room to think he lived rather before, that there is room to think he lived rather before than after Christ. That is very, very weak evidence. And so Clark says the translation should be land, and I believe that's what it is. So darkness all over Israel, probably from rain clouds, from 12 to 3 o'clock. Let's go to Matthew 27:46. About 3 in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I said when I read this passage in Mark, I said it was 
Aramaic. It's actually a mixture of Aramaic and Hebrew. Remember, Aramaic is a dialect of the Hebrew language, so that there would be a mixture. That's no big deal. It happens all the time. If you ever listen to Chinese people, they, Chinese people speak as they mix dialect in with Mandarin. You'll see that people do that. This is the NIV Study Bible points out that it's a mixture of Aramaic and Hebrew. Matthew translates it for his readers. Clark says there has been a debate, actually, over which language it is, either Hebrew or Syriac, which is Aramaic, a form of Aramaic. But the NIV Study Bible says it's not either or, it's both. What Jesus is doing is quoting from Psalm, Psalm 22.1, which says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken, forsaken me? Why are you, are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? It's amazing that Jesus always quoted the Scripture. He quoted the Scripture to the devil. He quoted the Scripture to the Pharisees. He's all quoted the Scripture to the disciples. He was full of the Scripture. He believed in the written Word of God, unlike certain evangelical wussy pusses today who are constantly talking about the alleged so-called errors in the Scriptures just because they don't take a little bit of effort to harmonize different scriptural accounts. John Gill points out at 3 in the afternoon, was just about the time of the slaying and the offering of the daily sacrifice, the morning and offering sacrifice about 9 o'clock, evening sacrifice about 3 o'clock, and so this is appropriate. He dies as the sacrifice for all of the human race who believe in him. Now when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is speaking, of course, from his human nature. God the Father cannot forsake God the Son. I mean, that's just not possible. His divine nature, he's divine. God can't forsake himself. He's talking about his human nature. As a result, he walked in our shoes. He was the perfect sacrifice. He experienced everything that we experienced. Have you ever felt abandoned by God because of your sin? Who hasn't? Jesus himself felt that. Now, he had been silent during the whole three hours of darkness from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then all of a sudden, he broke out in anguish, feeling the divine wrath, feeling the opposition of the powers of darkness, something that is utterly unimaginable and unthinkable to our human ears. Now, what does he mean when he says he was forsaken? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, here's the. let's look at some options. The first option, which is impossible, is that the hypostatical union, that is the, the union of, of the human nature and the divine nature, that union was dissolved. And, of course, that can't be true. That's absurd. That can never happen. Second option, God didn't love Jesus anymore. Well, that's absurd, too. Of course, God, God the Father still loved God the Son. That's ridiculous. Third option, Jesus was separated from the knowledge and presence of God. Now that, I believe, is what happened because Jesus in his human nature was separated from the knowledge and presence of God because he was carrying the sins of the world. And that's just like us. We're all born with the wrath of God on our heads, a judgment of death on our heads when we come into this world, and we're separated from God because of our sins. We don't know him, can't communicate with him because we have sin. Well, Jesus had sin. He bore the sins of the world, and so he was separated from his conscience presence of being close to God during his life. I will point out here there's another option, optional translation. Adam Clark gives it as, my God, my God, what sort of persons has thou left me? Ooh, that's a little bit weak, I think. I don't like that translation. I don't know how strong it is, how reasonable it is, but I don't think that's going to fly. Let me repeat the application for Christians. If Jesus, our high priest, suffered the things that we do, and he did, then it will be normal for us to feel at some point abandoned by God. And every Christian has gone through that when you say, God, where are you? Some people have actually criticized Jesus. Can you believe that? Criticizing Jesus for saying this. How could the Son of God say something like that, that God had abandoned him? Of course, God had not forsaken him. Adam Clark says of these critics, 
They are unworthy of a man who suffers, conscious of his innocence, and, and these words argue imbecility, impatience, and despair. In other words, they're stupid for saying something like that. We go to verse 47. When some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling for Elijah because they heard that Eli, Eli, Lama, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, in Aramaic or Hebrew or whatever language it was. That's why Matthew translated the language because it makes sense of these words. He's calling for Elijah. Now, it could be that those who heard didn't understand the phrase, Eli, Eli, Lama, Salmachthani. They didn't understand it because they didn't know Hebrew. They might have been Hellenistic Jews standing around. So say Adam Clark and John Gill, or it could just be that there were Jews standing by, couldn't clearly hear what Jesus said. Either way, it's reasonable that they would ask about Elijah, especially since Elijah was commonly thought to come in times of distress to rescue the righteous, as my NIV study Bible says. You know, even today, Jews at the Passover, they leave an empty chair for Elijah to come. Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah. Remember the story about John the Baptist? And Jesus said, and people ask him, well, where's John the Baptist? If you're the Messiah, where's John the Baptist? And Jesus said, John the Baptist has already been here. Excuse me, Elijah's already been here. His name was John the Baptist. So that's why they were asking for Elijah. We now turn to John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. This, of course, is three o'clock in the afternoon when he's about to die. He knew that everything was accomplished. That means everything that was involved in the salvation of the human race from its sin, assuming you believed in Jesus, that was accomplished, that was done. He had borne the sins of the world. And then he said, I'm thirsty. Now, of course, being thirsty is a natural thing for crucified people. I saw an account of a young guy that got crucified outside of Damascus, and he put up with all kinds of suffering, and, and historically, but the last day, it took him three days to die, and the last day... He was saying, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. And there was water nearby, and he kept looking at it. So apparently, crucified people are extremely dehydrated, and the thirst about drives them crazy. The fatigue, of course, he hadn't slept in over a day. He'd been beaten, nailed to a cross. He was eaten up with grief. It was hot, probably. He had lost a lot of blood. So it's natural that he was thirsty. Now, it says that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Well, how? Everything was accomplished that the Scripture might be fulfilled, or the Scripture might be fulfilled when Jesus said, I'm thirsty. People debate that. Here's some possible references as to how the Scripture could be fulfilled when he said, I'm thirsty. Psalm 69:21, which says this, Instead, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Sounds like a pretty good reference there. Psalm 22:15. My strength is dried up like bait clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. And of course, Psalm 22 is the famous Messianic Psalm. All kinds of scripture in there point to the crucifixion. So the NIV Study Bible, Gill, and Jameson, Foss, and Brown all refer to Psalm 22:15 as being a prophecy being fulfilled by this thirsty remark. That could be. Or it could be that the scripture might be fulfilled by everything that was accomplished in his life. His life his teaching, his miracles, his suffering on the cross, his passion, all of this, which would refer, of course, to Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and all the scriptures that pointed to Jesus. I tend to think it's that. It's all the scriptures that pointed to Jesus. All the scriptures that pointed to the salvation of, the, of Jesus, the salvation of the world through Jesus' sacrifice. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 27, verses 48 and 49, starting with verse 48. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. One of the bystanders, could be a bystander, could be a soldier, ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, 
fixed it on a reed and offered him a drink. John 19 verse 29 says that there was a vessel full of vinegar set close by. That verse says this, a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. Now, why did they do this? Here's some options as to the motives of the of the, of the, those standing by. They could have been doing it to revive his spirits. Now, Gil denies that. I think Gil's wrong. In my opinion, somebody had sympathy on him. William Lane, the famous commentator on Mark, says that the bystanders wanted to keep Jesus alive long enough to see if Elijah would rescue him. In other words, the more he drank, the longer he's going to live. Maybe Elijah will come get him off the cross. Now, there's an interesting thing here. When Jesus first got, maybe it was on the Via Dolorosa, on the road to Golgotha, or maybe it was when he got there, but the women of Jerusalem offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and Jesus refused it because that was a narcotic. It was supposed to dull some of the pain, but Jesus wanted to be fully conscious when he bore the sins of the world. And here, he took the drink, According to some commentators, it's questionable whether he actually drank it. We'll see in John, it says he received the vinegar. It's not clear that he actually drank it. But assuming he did drink it, it was because he wanted to stay long, awake as long as possible to make sure that his mission of bearing the sins of the world was accomplished. Some people have said the wine, sour wine was offered to hasten Jesus' death, but that can't be. Sour wine was a refreshing drink that soldiers and laborers used all the time. John Gill claims it was to mock him. Jesus said he's thirsty. And so they say, oh, you're thirsty, huh? Well, let me give you some wine. Well, why would that mock him? Because wine is a good drink, not a bad drink. William Lane says there is no instance recorded anywhere of vinegar being given to mock anyone. It was a very refreshing drink, so that's not going to fly. So I think that William Lane has it right that the wine, the sour wine was offered to Jesus to refresh him, to keep him alive a little bit longer to see if Elijah would come save him. We go to Matthew 27, verse 49. But the rest said, other people there said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Now, I've already mentioned this. The NIV Study Bible said that it was commonly believed that Elijah would come in times of critical need to rescue the righteous. The Jews thought that Elijah was the forerunner of the Messiah, as we know from Jesus' teaching. So it's logical for him to come to rescue the Messiah. And John Gill points out the Jews had a notion that Elijah commonly came and talked to the people. So that's why they were asking for Elijah. Now let's turn to John's account of this incident. John 19 verse 29. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. Now we have, hyssop is an extra detail. That's a name given to a number of plants in the Old Testament according to, according to the NIV study Bible. As the question arises, what is the relationship of the hyssop to the sponge? Adam Clark says a great variety of conjectures have been produced to solve the difficulty in this test. I don't in this text. I don't see why it's such a difficulty, really. Here's one option: the reed and the hyssop were the same thing. Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown affirmed this. The hyssop was, and then at the end of the hyssop, the hyssop was attached to the sponge. A hyssop was a kind of a medicinal type plant, like aloe vera, aromatic positive things go with hyssop. It was used in the Old Testament ritual, you know, the, I think in the in the ritual of the red bull, the heifer. Another option is that the reed and the hyssop were distinct things. The hyssop was tied to the reed on one end and to the sponge on the other. Well, I don't know about that. I think it's probably just easy to say that there was a reed hyssop at the end of the reed. It was given to Jesus. All right, now, it was held up to his mouth, John says. 
either he drank it or he didn't drink it. It's not certain whether he drank it, according to to John Gill. I've seen some writers who are very certain that he drank it. The very, very next verse, which I'll read now, sounds like he did drink it, because in verse 30 in John 19, it says this, When Jesus had received the sour wine, when he had received it, now that's a little bit ambiguous. You're not sure whether they just took it up there and he looked at it and, and he didn't take it and he didn't actually drink it, but he just you know, took it he took it with his mouth because they, they held it up to his mouth. But I think he finally took it. He realized that he was finished bearing the sins of the world. Then he said, He's it is finished. Then bowing his head he gave up his spirit. Now let me read you some good quotes about this very famous last words of Jesus. It is finished. You know what the last words of Socrates were? I owe Asclepius a cock. I mean, this noble death of Socrates that everybody talks about so much, the last thing he said was, I need to sacrifice a rooster to a god. Apparently, even Socrates, as calm as he was about death, he was still worried about maybe a god might not quite be satisfied with him. But anyway, Jesus' death is much more majestic. He said it is finished. The NIV Study Bible says he came to do what he accomplished to do. Adam Clark says this, quote, I have executed the great designs of the Almighty. I have satisfied the demands of his justice. I have accomplished all that was written in the prophets and suffered the utmost malice of my enemies. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I am finished. Jameson Fawcett and Brown say this, quote, The law is fulfilled as never before, nor since, in his obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. Messianic prophecy is accomplished. Redemption is completed. He hath finished the transgression and made reconciliation for iniquity and brought in everlasting righteousness and sealed up the vision and prophecy and anointed a holy of holies. He has inaugurated the kingdom of God and given birth to a new world. So that's a pretty majestic statement. It, it, there was a lot of majestic thoughts contained in that short phrase, it is finished. Now, when it says he gave up his spirit, that's an unusual way of describing death, according to the NIV Study Bible, and it perhaps suggests an act of the will. In other words, he freely laid down his life by giving up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. He voluntarily gave it up. That's a supposition, reasonable, I suppose, even though it's probably unprovable. Now, let's go to Matthew 27:50 and read this. Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Here we have some more details. First of all, it says he shouted again with a loud voice. So twice did he, sh- he shouted when he was on the cross. The first time he shouted was in verse 46 of Matthew 27. In that verse, which we just read recently, it says this, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, laba sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice that it was with a loud voice that he did this. And remember, crucified criminals don't speak with loud voices. They have absolutely no energy left. But Jesus cried out very loudly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll see you later. That's really influenced the people watching this crucifixion, that this was not a normal man who was being crucified on this cross. That was the first time that Jesus cried out loudly. The second time is here in verse 50 in Matthew 27. Jesus shouted again with a loud voice, it is finished. We we know that by comparing the loud voice in Matthew 27:50 to the it is finished in John 19:30. Now, here's some options as to what this loud voice showed, what kind of emotions this loud voice showed. John Gill says it could have showed the vehemency of his affection because of his love for God, his strong confidence in God, his fearlessness of death. Jesus could could have said it loudly so the crowd could hear. 
because what he was saying was of great importance. We're talking about it now, 2,000 years later. It is finished. He had just expiated the sins of the world. That's an important thing that he did, and so people needed to hear about it. And I mentioned how weak he was at this point and how unique it was that he could have shouted out with a loud voice. It's good to remember how weak Jesus would have been at this point. As John Gill says, after such agonies in the garden and so much fatigue and being hurried from place to place and such loss of blood as being buffeted, scourged, crowned with thorns and nailed to the accursed tree where being stretched he had hung for some hours. That he could cry out with such a loud voice was a mark of his divinity, John Gill says. We see in Mark 15:39 the effect it had on the centurion. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. We'll talk about that, about that a little bit more later. But see, that loud voice had a great impact on the people standing around. As the NIV study Bible, this was such an unusual thing because crucified men were usually exhausted and unconscious before dying. Now, when it says he gave up his spirit, that means he voluntarily died. His life was not taken from him, according to John Gill and Adam Clark. He was a free will sacrifice for sin, according to Adam Clark. He did not hang on the cross till he died through pain and agony. He gave up his spirit. His bones were not broken to kill him because he was already dead when the soldiers came by and checked because he had given up his spirit. All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 46. One more verse and we'll be finished with the crucifixion. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. That entrust my spirit is something extra or different than the other Gospels. So that, of course, emphasizes the idea, which I've already mentioned, that his death was voluntarily. He voluntarily gave his spirit up. Saying this, he breathed his last. Now, by the way, showing by saying I entrust my spirit to God the Father, that shows that Jesus believed in an immaterial spirit that was separate from the body. There have been throughout philosophic history, people who are materialists who say that there is no soul, that so, that our conscious mind is a result of material processes in the brain. No. What Jesus said, when I give up my spirit, this is another proof of the immateriality of the soul and of its separate existence when the body is dead, as Adam Clark said. And if that's true of Jesus, he's the, he's the paradigm new creation, the new man. That means our souls are immaterial and we ain't ever going to die. All right, I'm returning from my splice, Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 37. And now I'm going to take up three verses that I omitted in that splice, verses 28, 29, and 30 of John chapter 19. We start with verse 28, John chapter 19. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. First problem we have is, what is he referring to when he says that the scripture might be fulfilled? Is he saying that, when Jesus knew that everything was accomplished and the accomplishing of everything is what fulfilled the scriptures, or was it that the scripture might be fulfilled when he said, I'm thirsty? Two different ways you can look at it. Well, let's look at some possible references that show that the scripture was fulfilled when Jesus said he was thirsty. Psalm 69:21. Instead, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Now there's four commentators that I have that say that this is what Jesus was referring to. That's a lot of witnesses. The NIV Study Bible, John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. NIV Study Bible and Gill and John, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown also refer to Psalm 22:15, which is, of course, a messianic psalm. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of, a, roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. I think that's probably what 
the, uh, John was referring to, the scripture is going to be fulfilled when Jesus said, I'm thirsty. However, Ellicott, the commentator, says that it might be referring to all the events of Jesus' life. So when Jesus knew that everything was accomplished, in other words, everything is in his life, his life, his death, was finished, um, and that, that's what fulfilled the scripture. And of course, that would refer to, I guess, all, anything all the way from the virgin birth to the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, show, showing that the scripture was fulfilled, showing that Jesus' death had fulfilled those scriptures because his, everything was accomplished now. I really don't think so. I, I think that those four commentators, and I've studied Bible, John Gill, Adam Clark, Jameson, Foster, and Brown, who say that these passages fulfilled in when Jesus said, I'm thirsty, his thirst is which fulfilled the scripture, namely Psalm 69:21 and Psalm 22:15. I think that's your answer there. Now, why was Jesus thirsty? Of course, crucified people are extremely thirsty. He was worn out with fatigue. He had been up, up all night, grilled, interrogated, whipped, mocked. He was torn up with grief. He was losing his mother and his family. It was hot, probably, because now, by now you're talking about mid-afternoon. And, of course, he'd lost a lot of blood from being nailed to the cross and being scourged and whipped. So, yeah, he was thirsty. Now, we need to distinguish this, by the way, between when he was about to get nailed on the cross, someone offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Wine mixed with myrrh. That was in Mark 15, verse 23. This was given to him right before he was hung on the cross, and Jesus refused that. But this vinegar right here doesn't say whether he drank it or not. We don't know. But we need to distinguish those two incidents. One, one had a drug in it at first. Jesus wanted to be awake when he was crucified. And this was just sour wine vinegar to kill the thirst. You might say, well, why would vinegar kill thirst? I used to drink vinegar in China. I never thought I would, but it actually is very good. They would put it in cans and, and, fr and you get it cold in the refrigerator. Man, that's a good drink. Can't find it in America, at least I hadn't seen it. So there's nothing strange about drinking vinegar to quench one's thirst, although it might appear strange at first. John 19, verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. Now, now one would think that the purpose of the people, some unnamed people offering Jesus a sponge full of sour wine was to quench his thirst. But, it's a, but people speculate on this. Some people say, well, it was used to stop the flow of blood. That's what they use vinegar for. That's John Gill. The NIV study Bible says that this may have shown some foresight and compassion on someone's part. I think that's probably what the answer is. The NIV study Bible says that often this stuff was, this sour wine was just routinely placed in front of condemned men to ease their suffering. Here's some other options that are not quite so nice. John Gill says that it might, the, the motive might have been to keep the crucified one alive a little bit longer to prolong his misery, which is pretty disgusting. John Gill says maybe the wine was placed by for the use of the Roman soldiers. And somebody said, well, the Roman soldiers aren't drinking it right now. I'll soak a sponge in it and put it up to Jesus' mouth. Some people say that the purpose of giving Jesus the sour wine was to reproach him and mock him, although I don't know why that would be reproach. And the famous commentator on Mark, Lane, says no, vinegar was never given to mock anyone. So let's just assume that the vinegar was put up there as an act of compassion by someone to alleviate Jesus' suffering. Now, how it was handed up there is an interesting question. Well, it's a sort of an interesting question. The Holman Christian Study Bible just says they took the sponge, stuck it on a stalk of hyssop, 
and held it up to his mouth. Hyssop is a branch, a tree branch was a spice kind of thing. I was going through John with my Greek tutor, and we got to this passage in John, and I'm telling you that the translation was horrible. No wonder they don't know exactly what happened. What is the relationship of the hyssop to the sponge? Adam Clark says, A great variety of conjectures have been produced to solve the difficulty in this text. I sure couldn't figure it out trying to translate the Greek straight. Here are some options. Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown hold to this. Option number one, the reed and the hyssop were the same thing. The hyssop was then attached to the sponge. Another option is the reed and the hyssop were distinct things. The hyssop was tied to the reed on one end, so the sp to the sponge on the other. Well, whatever, it was a hyssop reed or it was a piece of hyssop attached to another reed. doesn't really matter. It's absolutely immaterial what it was. I don't even know why I brought it up. But anyway, Jesus drank it. Verse these are options as to whether Jesus drank it or not. Verse 30 sounds like he drank it because it says when Jesus received the sour wine, but received is not necessarily the same thing as drinking. And he might have just taken, the, well, he couldn't move his hands, but he might have just taken the sponge and not drink it. John Gill says it's not certain whether he drank it. I don't know. How do you receive hyssop soaked in sour vinegar with your mouth because you can't move your hands? How do you do that without drinking it? I don't know. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, of course, what was finished was the suffering sacrifice for the sins of mankind. That's what was finished. All was accomplished or finished. This saying, It is finished, was accompanied with a loud cry in Mark 15:37. The NIV Study Bible says that the phrase, the, 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 the words, It is finished, is apparently the same thing as the loud cry. In other words, he screamed out, It is finished. Matthew 27:50 says, Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. What does the NIV Study Bible say about this victorious death, about this, uh, this statement that it is finished? They say that Jesus died victorious. He came to do what he accomplished to do. Adam Clark comments this, I have executed the great designs of the Almighty, as, he, as Adam Clark puts himself in the shoes of Jesus. I have satisfied the demands of his justice. I have accomplished all that was written in the prophets and suffered the utmost malice of my enemies. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say this, quote, the law is fulfilled as never before, nor since, in his obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. Messianic prophecy is accomplished. Redemption is completed. He hath finished the transgression and made reconciliation for iniquity and brought in everlasting righteousness and sealed up the vision and prophecy and anointed a holy of holies. He has inaugurated the kingdom of God and given birth to a new world. And ladies and gentlemen, thus we end Jesus' last three hours on the cross as he dies, as his spirit leaves, and he returns to his Father in heaven to be with that thief in paradise. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're finished with this discussion of Jesus' last three hours on the cross from 12 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Good Friday. I was a little rep repetitive there at the end, but I don't think it makes that much difference. The next audio, we're going to look at Luke chapter 23 verses 45 47 48 and 49 which discuss which relate the phenomena accompanying the death of christ i hope you stay tuned for that audio and i hope you enjoyed this one